We're going to read Colossians 1.21 through 1.23. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has, been, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right. Whew. Um, I just have to make comment on that last song. Um, that second verse, it says... Um, let our shout be your anthem, your renown fill the skies. We are here for you. We are here for you. And he says, let your word move in power. Let what's dead come to life. And, and uh, I was able to get in a few minutes of reading yesterday. And I'm reading through this book called Preach. Uh, Theology Meets Practice. And uh, in this, he's basically beginning trying to present the story, the power of of the proclamation of God's word. Like the power of what we get to do in these next few moments. Versus anything else we do as a church. And I tell you, it's really radically kind of affecting my mind. Because I, I've always thought, well, as long as we're talking about the word, like this is good. Like Bible study's good. The word's good. And, you know, we talk about the word amongst each other. Small Bible studies. And, and basically, he's presenting the case that the proclamation of God's word is, should be, the focal point of the church. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be on a Sunday morning with speakers and chairs and, and a band and all of that. But the, basically a person or people, but primarily a person without discussion proclaiming the word of God and its primary function in the church. And as he was doing this, he was, in part of this chapter, he was recounting um, the prophet Ezekiel, standing at the valley of dry bones. And he's standing there, and basically God tells his prophet to preach the word. Now, uh, I've been in some dead churches. Uh, you all are not dead. You are alive, at least, uh, and f- physically are alive. And he's standing at what is the, was the slaughter of thousands of dead soldiers. And the bones had been there for so long that they were dry. And God tells him to preach, to proclaim his word. And the imagery there, and the picture of what happens is he begins to preach God's word. And the Bible says that the bones, the bones begin to shake. And basically, the valley of dead soldiers come to life at the proclamation of God's word. And the whole point of that passage is the power of God's word to bring dead people to life. And uh, so, when we sang that, it kind of hit me. I'm going, let your word move in power. Let what's dead come to life. And... Um, just, just awesome. Sorry, emotional moment, <laughs> but uh, 
I just, that's my prayer, is that the word would bring our dead souls to life. Because even though we might be followers of Christ, there are still aspects in our lives that are dead. And we need the word, the proclaiming of God's word to infiltrate our hearts and, and to, to grip a hold of it, to rip it, to bring it to life with the bones in that closet, that part of our lives, to, to begin to shake, begin to tremble, and the flesh begin to, to come back, and, and then the breath of God breathes life into that aspect of, of who we are, and new birth begins. And then it grows and fosters, and that's what God does. And it, guys, it's not like we we don't just do things to like be good people. Like we proclaim God's word in order to bring us to life. That's what it's about. So these next few moments, what we do in Bible study, even is not just we're just doing this church thing. Even though how grand that might be, I just what I want to do is I just want to draw your attention that that these moments that we get to spend in God's word are valuable. They are valuable. And it's my privilege to get to teach them to you. Um, I say that even with trembling because uh, this passage you're getting ready to work through I think is difficult. Uh, it's it's um, probably one of the first passages I've come to that I'm going, oh, I don't know if I completely grasp it myself as far as, there's lots of passages I don't necessarily understand fully. Uh, but to preach it and to go, God, just give me grace. Um, and let this infiltrate your guys' hearts. So today um, is the kind of the second part of um, last week entitled, And Now. So Paul gets through this glorious picture of who Christ is. And, and he's painting this picture for the Galatians. And then he gets, and basically he goes, and now you. How does this, this glorious picture of Christ, the preeminent one, the sovereign one, the creator of all, how does this involve you? He turns, he says, and now. And so last week, or before I get ahead of myself, it's kind of setting this up for you. What we're going to talk about today is uh, a doctrine that I think that, in my experience and observation, that the church has terribly messed up. I think we have a misunderstanding of this doctrine, um, and that doctrine being eternal security. I think we have a very messed up view, a misinformed view maybe, of, uh, of what it means to be saved and locked in the grace of God. What does that mean? Um, basically, eternal security is also termed as once saved, always saved. Um, that's another common phrase um, used. And with, I'm not going to do this justice. This is not the moment right now to do it. But basically the, the gist of once saved, always saved, eternal security is that the emphasis is on the grace of God to forgive sins and little to none of that on the works that should follow after salvation. And so there's this, I'm saved and Yes, it matters what I do, but not really. Like, because it's all covered underneath the blood, so it doesn't really matter what I do. I'm still going to go to heaven. Um, that's, that's a typical Baptist church view of eternal security. Now, they will say, yes, you need to become like Christ. And, but 
not to the extent, and, they, and, and, and most of them will fuss, okay, with the way Paul presents it here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. And they will fuss, and they're going to fuss with these words, and if that recording, this, this recording ever gets out, um, you know that I may have to defend more some things, but that's okay. I think this is what Paul teaches. So anyways, all that to say, eternal security, and then that's, I'm not saying that we don't, that I don't believe in eternal security. What I'm saying is that I want us uh, to have a biblical definition and framework from which to understand eternal security. Uh, And I think a better terminology I didn't come up with this phrase, but I think what the, I don't even hardly, in general conversation, I don't refer usually to eternal security because it contains so many negative connotations and misunderstandings that I pretty much, and this has happened within the past couple of years, but have solely went to using the phrase perseverance of the saints. I, I just, it covers, and it, even within its phrasing, really captures what it means to be a follower of Christ, to persevere to the end, and then to meet our Savior in the sky. Like, that's what it means. And I think, you see what Paul's doing here, and I hope to present to you today that uh, a better understanding of being secure in the work of God. So, here's what we're going to do, though. Today, again, we're just never going to get through Colossians, okay? So, we might as well just give that up. Jesus is probably going to come back sooner. But what we're going to do is uh, we're going to work through verse 23 today, okay? Um, that's it. We're just going to get through 23, and then we're going to stop. Um, and then next week, I'm going to be gone, or actually, I'm going to be here. I'm going to lead worship. Rusty's going to teach. He's going to teach on into verse 24. And then the following week, I'm going to come back <laughs> to the same topic uh, and give a more formal, systematic approach approach, if you will, basically a topical sermon on perseverance of the saints. And here's the deal. This is the beauty. I mean, we're going through Colossians, and, and here he comes to something that should be very, very dear to our heart. I mean, this is the second step, of, if you will, in the salvation process. We were saved, we're being saved, and then we are, like, we are finally reached the destination. So, like, we've talked about this before, but you should see salvation kind of in three parts. There's the moment where we were justified, then there's the moment where we're working out our salvation. We often to call it sanctification. And then there's a moment where we reach heaven where it, that process is finished, where we meet Christ, where we are presented before the throne, holy, blameless, and above reproach, and that is called our glorification. So we see eternal security. We think we are saved, and now it doesn't matter what I do in here, although I should kind of become like Jesus, felt bored Jesus, and then we get to heaven, and, and then that's when it's really finished. Um, and so this stuff, but Perseverance of the Saints says, this stuff in between A and C, the letter B matters. And it matters. Matter of fact, your salvation depends upon it. Now, that's the phrase where the Baptists go, oh no, work salvation. So I just... Hang with me for just a few moments. I, I got to get through my intro here or we will never get through anything. But so here's what we've done. We've talked about in this passage, we've talked about our past. All right, so Paul, this is just kind of reviewing what we did last week. He talks about how we were alienated, right? We were alienated from God. We are separated from God, which leads to a hostile mind. And then those two things lead to evil deeds. 
And then he goes on, if you look, go back to your Bibles, let's, let's go back to verse 21. He says, and you were once alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds. And he says, the present, though, is that he has now reconciled you in his body, the body of flesh. And then he goes on and says, that he basically gives our future happenings with God. And that is, we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. So that's our past. We were reconciled to God in order to be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now we get to what we must do. What we must do. Our part in the process. Now, again, just stick with me because I'm going to say certain phrases like our part in the process that needs greater clarification, but that's going to have to come as we work through this. Rusty and I were talking about the beauty of preaching and how sometimes, like you, here's the big idea, but it may take us 20 minutes to get to the big idea. So you got to kind of hang. That's why notes are so valuable because if you miss this right here, then by the time we get here, you're going, I don't know what he's talking about. That's because this back here was a conclusion. Now, part of that's on me because I have to be able to teach it that way, but ultimately that's on God. But anyways, all that to say, hang with me, but the phrase is we are part in the process, and that's what we're going to work through today. Last thing before we jump into the notes is today what I uh, hope to do is to convince you uh, into having a fear that you could one day walk away from your faith. I want to convince you that that is a possibility for you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because I just don't, frankly, I don't think it needs a lot of convincing. And then the second thing we're going to do in your outline there is we're going to look at what Paul has to say about the necessity of persevering to the end, persevering in our faith. So, first step, convincing us to, or to see that we could one day walk away. Um, first of all, the allure to walk away. There is great temptation for us at every turn to walk away from our faith. Um, Satan's temptation is great, and he knows right where our weaknesses are. Without giving too much to credit to Satan, though, I mean, we have to admit that our personal inward desire, that's a part of who we are, the desire for sin is great. Does anybody disagree so far? No? All right, well, I should say, who agrees? There we go. Yes, we have a great desire to sin. Sorry, I would, that would have been fun if you had raised your hand. Uh, I'm glad you didn't. All right, anyways, many of you, though, are thinking, here's the deal. I would never walk away from Christ. I would never walk away from Christ. Um, I would never abandon my faith. Um, you know, of course, the very first thing that comes to mind, I think about Peter. You know, Jesus, I would never abandon you. 
And then he says, you know, before the crooster, for the crooster, yeah, for the rooster, you know, three times. And Peter does why he denies Jesus three times. He abandons his faith. And I don't think he ultimately abandoned his faith, but for just a moment, I think that helps us communicate that he abandoned Christ in those moments. And I just want to say this. If you think I would never walk away from Christ, I think, I think that's kind of your first problem. Like, Already from the very bad, from the very beginning, you are kind of standing on weak ground. And I stand before you and, and I say, I fear that one day I could walk away. That one day I could say, this is just too much. And walk away. Why? Why? Reason number one. The cost becomes too much. The cost becomes too much. I honestly believe we come to this one with a disadvantage. Because we have so much, we have so much to lose. And so when we begin for, thing, for the faith to begin to cost us, the cost oftentimes starts sooner because we have so much. I don't think that's an excuse. I'm just saying it's an extra added warning that the cost could become too much sooner than it comes for someone who may not live in a wealthy state like we do. For some of you, the cost becomes too much because you did not consider the cost as you began to follow Christ. Luke 14 Verse 28 says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now what's awesome is that's a, that's a great idea of counting the cost. What's even more awesome is it's in the context of Christ calling people to follow him. And he's telling them, he gives, matter of fact, he gives them another story about a king going to battle right afterwards. And he's saying to them, count the cost. And, and when we present the gospel, and I don't want to rehash all this, but when we present the gospel today, we, we do it in such a way that, well, you know, come to Jesus. He, he's got all this to offer. And... and, and, and <laughs> Those might be true, but I just, Jesus presented it this way for a reason. And I think we would it'd behoove us to model after Christ, lest we lead people into a man-centered gospel. Um, we lead them into surrendering their life to not really the gospel. It's, it's really a, it's a perversion of the gospel, but a man-centered idea of the gospel. Maybe... So for you, maybe the cost becomes too much or maybe it could become too much because at this moment in time, you've surrendered to a man-centered gospel. Some, some uh, most of your thought, so let me, let me paint this picture. For you, the, your thought life kind of goes like this. Uh, well, I really want to do my life this way. And then when trouble comes along, that's when I go to God. So for you, a man-centered gospel, if you will, if that's even a possibility, uh, 
for a moment, let's imagine it is. A man-centered gospel, you have surrendered to that. And so for you, your daily walk with Christ looks like you chose your job. You chose where to live. You chose how many kids to have. You chose the car you drive. You continue to live in pride, thinking you have it figured out. You continue to choose how to treat your wife. You continue to choose how to present your kids and, or to, to parent your kids. And then you ask God to bless it. There's a fundamental issue with that. Because those of us who are followers of Christ, you just go back and look at the broader context of Luke 14, verse 28 through 30, and you look at the verses around it, Jesus is saying, you're no longer alive to even choose your own stuff. Like, your choosing doesn't matter. He, he likens us to someone who's carrying a cross. So who's someone's carrying a cross? They're not thinking about what car they're going to drive tomorrow and and these, they're, they're a dead man walking. And when we die to Christ, we are dead men walking, seeking only his desires, his plans. But this is prevalent. I mean, this is all over our Christian faith and churches. I'll give you two examples. Um, unfortunately, both of these come from Facebook. Facebook is, is just a wealth of examples of our sin, Okay. It's just out there, so I, I, I have to use it. Uh, one person this past week is recounting the great things that have happened for them this past year. And this person I know, because I know fairly well, lives this kind of life. Like, God is kind of their genie in a bottle, and they kind of go to that person when, when, they, when things are good. But otherwise, they kind of do their own thing. And then all of a sudden, they've experienced a few blessings in 2012. And their comment is, I just can't wait to see what God has in store the rest of this year. What's really ironic about the whole statement is that the word God in her thing was not capitalized. Um, that's, I think, the irony of the situation. But, yeah, yes, good things come from God, and God does bless even those who are dreadfully in their sin. I'm not saying it doesn't, but here's the deal. Like, you're not concerned about God until, like, you're concerned about what he's going to bless you with the rest of the year. That's not, that's not Christianity. Second one. Um, this is a pretty well-known leader, in the, at least in the Baptist realm of things. And, and he, he quotes this verse on Facebook with no context, no explanation. He says, we plan the way we want to live, but only God makes us able to live it. And I understand he's quoting Proverbs 16, 9. Um, but that verse and this person's audience, um, without the context of the verse and explanation, and then given the context of the recipients who are not solid Bible discerning individuals, go to that verse. And to me, it says, and to them, I'm sure it says that, you know, I get to choose the way I want to live, but it's God's responsibility to enable me to do it. And, and that's, that's a man-centered gospel. And that's not what that verse is talking about if you understand the context. But my point is this is, this is, like, this is out there and it's in here too. We want to live our lives and then ask God to bless our choosing. And so for those who are in that position, one day the cost is going to become too high. And that is what will weed out those who are truly followers of Christ and those who were given to a man-centered gospel.
So the cost could become too high. For some of you, the cost could become too high because you've never learned that it's not about your strength. It's not about your strength. You will find yourself in a hard spot someday. I pray this does not happen to our church, but this could happen. The death of a child, the affair of a spouse, the betrayal of a church leader, and the list could go on. So you'll find yourself at the end of your strength, and at that point you have two options. You either turn to Christ, realizing that he is our strength, or you turn to yourself and walk away. This happens all the time. Another awesome example from Facebook, unfortunately, church cites the last few words of this verse, and it says dot, 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 and nothing will be impossible for you. Matthew 17, 20, and then the question, do you believe this church? There's so much more to that. And I'm just going, are we trying to lead our people down a false road? Again, is this about our blessing? Is this about God blessing what we want to do and then turn around and, and affirming it by telling us that it's, that it's all possible for us? Let me tell you, the Bible is not teaching that everything is possible. I mean, we live in a culture where we think whatever plan I have, that as long as I have God, then I will not fail. Like, that's our thinking. As long as I'm doing God's plan, I'm not going to fail. Let me wake you up. Guys, understand that God could have a plan for you, and it's planned that in that plan and carrying out that plan that you fail. Matter of fact, I'm sure of it. We all have plans for our lives that God intends for us to fail. We can imagine all the lessons and we can justify that, but the fact is he still has that plan. So for some of us, we get to the end of the road and we realize, I can't do this anymore. And the fact is you have been doing it on your strength and not God's strength. For some, you could forsake the faith because you came to the end of your strength and you could no longer pay the price. Reason number two, the sin becomes too enticing. The sin becomes too enticing. Now here's where I think we really get to the dirtiness of ourselves. Um, guys, I, just in being transparent, I, I fear that one day I could walk away because the sin is too enticing. It's a reality. Now here, here's, the, here's, here's where some of you get pious on me, okay? are super spiritual on me. You say, well, I believe in eternal security. So I know that, that sin would never take me away. Like, you know, and, and what's interesting is that you may not know a whole lot of God's word, but the two verses you know is, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, you know, uh, John three sixteen, And then you might know without reference, John ten twenty nine, where it says, my father has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. And you'll go, see, right there. Doesn't matter what sin I do. Doesn't matter. I'm still sealed. And then I, but I would challenge you to read passages like Hebrews 5 and 6, where he talks about the one who is tasted even 
and walks away. Again, there's, I'm going to leave that hanging for a few moments, or well, actually probably for a couple weeks, unfortunately. And we'll come back and look at that a little more deeply. But I would just challenge you this week, read Hebrews 5 and 6 and see what's going on there, particularly the end of 5 and the beginning of 6. What's going on? For some, the sin becomes enticing because you're not being filled with the knowledge of his will. You continue to fill your lives with the knowledge of your desires. And even that can look religious. So eventually your desires overtake your apparent faith. And you walk away. For most, I mean, this starts off very small, very slight. It begins with a second look at the coworker. It begins with slacking in your commitment to the body of Christ. It begins with wanting that toy that you don't have the money for. Then it moves to texting your coworker about issues with your own spouse, becoming hostile in mind towards the body of Christ, not having enough money to pay the bills. Now all of a sudden you're finding satisfaction in that coworker that you can't seem to find in your spouse. Now all of a sudden you can't stand the church. And now all of a sudden you're blaming God because he is supposed to meet your needs and you don't have the money to pay the light bill. And it all started with a simple text. It all started with a lacking commitment to the body. And it all started with buying that toy that you didn't have the money for. Because I don't don't trust my heart. I don't trust my flesh. I'm just going to go with my heart. No, the Bible says your heart is evil. Don't trust your heart. Because I don't think so highly of myself to think that I would never be enticed by sin enough to forsake my faith. I think it's foolish to approach life saying, I would, can withstand anything that is presented before me and choose Christ no matter what. That is foolish. That is someone ready to fall, ready to crumble underneath the weight of their pride. We cannot live this life thinking that no matter what faces me, I can withstand it. That is foolish. And so we come to Colossians in the next passage. What must we do? What is Paul saying that we must do? So let's start, because I think it's in verse 21, because again, I hope this sets us up by the time we get to 23. So it says, And you who, were, who once were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you, this is a future event, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, you see it? If. If you have a different translation, there's still a conditional phrase there. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is so valuable for us to work on the, uh, just these few verses, because it just, it, well, I'll just leave it at that. It just, it, it, 
It sets the tone for our daily lives. I think this verse sets, that conditional phrase sets the tone, sets our focus, sets our pride in the right place. And so Paul says that we've been reconciled. Like, this is a fact. We've been reconciled. He's saying this to the Colossians, same thing to us today. And that we will be presented blameless, holy, and above reproach. If... Indeed, you continue. So the first thing for us to note from this passage is that we must persevere to the end. We must persevere to the end. And again, let me encourage you, stick with me, because this is we're gonna we're gonna wrap some things up, I hope, uh, if my feeble mind can take us there. So Colossians 1, verse 23, first phrase, if indeed you continue in the faith. And you're going, all right, well, there's got to be like something in the Greek or Hebrew, you know, something there to like, because uh, he doesn't really mean that, you know. There's some sort of hermeneutical dancing we can do to get around this because this makes me feel awkward. All right. The fact is the sovereign grace of God on which everything depends does not obliterate human responsibility. Okay, And we're going to see just part of that in this verse. Just because everything is dependent on God and we give all this credit to God and everything, there's still a a function or a place for human responsibility. So again, within within Baptist tradition, we find proponents of free will, uh, and particularly those of free will who don't believe in election. Now, uh, now, let me stop right there. I believe in free will, okay, and I believe that can work with election, all right? But let's, we're just going to leave it right there. I don't have time. But proponents often have free will and no election. When it comes to salvation, they want to put the emphasis on man's doing, man's choosing God. But when it comes to maintaining their salvation, they like to conveniently put the emphasis on God's doing and God's keeping, which I think is spiritually bankrupt, is intellectually dishonest. Scripture puts the emphasis on God and the whole process. And then we're talking about how our human responsibility sets within God's doing of the overall process. So, basically, the fact is Paul is saying that persisting in the faith and being established and firm are essential if the purpose of our reconciliation is to be realized. Let me start that phrase one more time. Let me read that to you one more time. Paul is saying that persisting in the faith and being stable and established and firm are essential if the purpose of our reconciliation, which is to be presented before God, holy, blameless, above reproach, if that's to be realized, we must persist. Now, Again, back to you're going, well, there's got to be something like crazy in here for us. No, no, no. That, I, I believe, is an honest reading of the text. That's what the Greek is telling us. There, there is no, well, you know, Paul's really saying. No, that's what Paul's saying. So here's the danger in modern Christianity. Is we approach a text like that and we go, how can we make this fit our belief? So we go, I have this belief, and then you backtrack to your support instead of starting with the text and then develop your belief out of the text, which is very dangerous. We do it the other way. I've grown up believing this, and then we backfill, if you will, our support for what we believe. It's dangerous. We start with the text, then we develop our belief out of the text. And 
But the, the, the fact is, we all have beliefs. We may not know how we support those beliefs. We try to support them. So sometimes we have to say, hey, forget all this in the middle. Let's just go back to here and then let this inform our beliefs. So all that to say, Paul is honestly telling us here that we must persist. We must persevere to the end. We must finish this race. Basically, if we're to be presented blameless before Christ, we must persevere. And here's the challenge. I say kind of all of that rhetoric there about how we, the danger of backfilling and all that, because here's the deal. The condition that Paul's saying here is a real condition. And it's important that we don't rob the words of their intentional, or of their intention uh, in their function. Like they... As words, there's a purpose that they're there. And if we try to soften it, if we try to make it more palatable, then we rob them of their intended function. And that's the danger. We can soften this. And I think what we've done in modern Christianity with our understanding of eternal security is we have softened the blow here. And so then we have... Our church looks the way it does. That's when we have Christians not living the faith. That's when we have churches not practicing church discipline. That's why we have these things. Because, well, once you're saved, you're sealed, and that's good to go. And then you just need to kind of try and live like Jesus. And as long as there's something that looks remotely like Jesus in there, we'll keep you on the church membership roll until you reach heaven. And then just usher you right on into what we think is heaven, and we're ushering you into hell instead. Try to soften the blow. Let's read a little bit later in Colossians. So these will help inform us even better of what Paul's trying to say here. Again, no, no evidence of a Colossian heresy. And that's important as we read these verses. Uh, chapter 2, verse 16 through 23 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. Listen to that. Let no one disqualify you. I would never walk away from the faith. Paul says, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through, through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul is genuinely concerned that the false teachings going on in the city of Colossae might disqualify the Colossian Christians. So Paul says, 
you'll get there if indeed you persist. And then later on, giving us examples of what could disqualify the church at Colossae. So basically, Paul's warning here in verse 23 is meant to be taken very seriously. I mean, this is not some faint-hearted thing where Paul's saying, yeah, just make sure you kind of look a little more like Jesus every day. Like, no, Paul's not saying that. Paul's saying you could be disqualified. Persist in your faith. Then you'll be presented blameless, holy, and above reproach. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a look at a couple different key words in this verse for fun, I think it'll be informational, but it'll be good and help us understand this. But basically, at the beginning of that, we have the basically the Greek construction there at the beginning of verse 23 is essentially provided that. So Paul is saying, you'll be presented, holy, blameless, above reproach, provided that you continue in the faith. Again, the idea there is it's conditional upon that. So if indeed or, uh, or such, that translates well. But here's the deal, and, and some scholars argue about this. Um, they, they, they think, some think that Paul is expressing doubt in this phrase, like going, you know, you'll be presented holy and blameless, you know, <laughs> provided that you persist in your faith. But I think there's more support. And what I've read and studied and, 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 and the Holy Spirit, I believe, I believe what Paul is saying here is, is, is expressing this with a confidence. It's a provided that you will move forward, you will persevere. Um, I think probably what would maybe help us in understanding this, maybe if I paraphrase it for us, at any rate... If you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure that you will. I think that's the gist of what Paul is saying here in provided that, or ahie in the Greek. Um, is that provided that, not expressing doubt, but a, a sense of assurance. And see, that's important for us, because as we come back to this in two weeks, I want to talk through some of this assurance. And, and even today, we're going to get to, because I don't want to leave us hanging, because there's a point at which I could leave us hanging that I think would be dangerous if we hung there even for just a few weeks. So oh, we have to get around to a, a kind of a resolution, at least a temporary resolution, that we can come back in and understand a few more things in a couple of weeks. But for now, see the point here. Paul is saying that there's, there's, a, there's a confidence in their pers- persevering in the faith. Now, where that confidence is, is where we're going to come back and s- fill that gap in. The second phrase in there is the faith. The faith. Uh, you see, well, that's simple, the faith. Yeah, maintain, persevere in the faith. And, but I, we have to, I, we live in a culture, we have different definitions for different terms. I think it's helpful for us to, to sort through this word, the faith. Because Paul, here's what, Paul's not referring to the subjective response of the Colossians to the gospel. So he's not referring to their emotional Hi, I just met Jesus. This is awesome. Uh, That's not what Paul's referring to. Paul is actually referring to the content of their belief, their faith. So when Paul says, remain firm in the faith, and stable and steadfast in the faith, persevere in the faith, he's saying persevere in your knowledge of God and in 
what you know is objective in, in his truth and, and being reconciled by God. Now, there's room for the subjective. That's part of it. But Paul's not referring to this some subjective experience. He's talking about the content of the gospel. For Paul, the faith he's saying here, we could define it as, literally, persevere in the content of our belief. He's referring to the gospel. Again, this coincides with what's Paul's concern later on. That they would be disqualified by moving from the belief in the gospel to the belief in the false teachers. Now, yes, a subjective experience comes along with that whole process. But Paul's concern is moving, transitioning from I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to reconcile and present me holy and blameless to ceremonial laws, to philosophies, self-help, and moving to those things. That's Paul's concern. So the faith is he's referring to. So he's saying persevere in this the constant of the gospel and, and hanging tight to the gospel. Basically, one of the means which Paul is using to ensure that the Colossians do not fall into false security is to stir them up with a warning like this. Paul is saying that in order to be presented holy, blessed, but reproach in, before Christ, you must continue in the gospel. Um, a scholar on the book of Colossians named O'Brien, he said, if it is true that the saints will persevere to the end and that we're going to dive in more later, then it is equally true that the saints must persevere to the end. So if it's true that they will, then it's also true that in this process that they will live out this life, that they will persevere to the end. I've been trying to drink my water. I'm going to drink my water. I'm trying to wait for a break, and I'm like, shut up, Matthew. I need to take water. All right, we'll just do it. So Paul is saying we must continue in our faith, and we have a responsibility to continue, to work hard, to persist. So that leads us to our second part, how we may persevere. How we may persevere. First of all, remain established and stable. So Paul's saying, if indeed you remain in the faith, then stable and established. A stable, uh, established, sorry. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and, and steadfast, or established and stable. These are all words that are interchangeable. Basically, they are metaphors, and this is where we need to get the gist of this passage, is that they are metaphors of strength and security used in connection with a house. Now, this is interesting. I just spent the past two days framing in part of a house. Um, and God's always, is, is just gracious with examples. Uh, sometimes, and sometimes he withholds his bounty. But uh, he, yesterday I was down working at the place where I like to go hunt. And we're putting up the house. And I, I love doing those kind of things. And uh, I really like using a nail gun. Those are awesome. I did not hammer a single nail, but somehow there's this house there now, uh, which is just beautiful, you know. Ugh! And then you got guys, you know, and particularly if you're a young guy. I, we digress for just a moment, but if you're a young guy and you got all these older, more experienced, you know, hammering kind of people, and, and like, you, you know how it is, like, you miss the nail, and you're like, oh, they're looking at me, you know. I missed the nail. Dang it, they're looking. You know what I'm saying? Come on. Anybody else? Yeah? 
Yeah, I mean, like, I know how to, you, you want to say, I know how to do this, I promise. And they're going, right. So, you know, I got razzed the whole time, you know, because I'm using this nail gun. And the, the, the fact is, no joke, the nail gun was messing up. It was not my trigger finger, okay? But a nail gun's not supposed to shoot out three nails in a row, like a machine gun, you know? So, boom, 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 And you know what, everybody's going, it wasn't me, you know. It wasn't just the gun. And they're going, right, right. So I got razzed the, the whole day. Um, so anyways, all this to say, we were building this house, and, and it starts to rain. And we all gather. I could show you the pictures maybe later. But we all gather underneath a lumber tarp, and, and we're underneath the rain. Actually, I just carried it because while I was waiting on all the buffoons to get their stuff together, I wasn't going to get wet. So I had the lumber tarp over, under, over me. While they were filling the table with their junk. And I thought, well, I'm not going to get wet. And then they all joined me underneath the, the tarp, which is really funny. Because uh, I'm like, I'm going to the car. Like, this would be much better in the car. Aren't we, are we standing underneath this? Anyways, sorry. So we're standing underneath there. And we're kind of giggling. I was trying to muster up some gas. But it wouldn't come because that would have been really funny. But we're standing there. I took some pictures. And, and, uh, and we're kind of looking out. And all of a sudden, you see and, and on this house, you see kind of a pool of water. Now, that's not a bad thing. It just means that the wood's really good, and it's kind of, it's solid. The decking's good, and there's a basement underneath. And, and uh, so we're sitting there, and, and then that water just kind of keeps going up and keeps going up. Of course, one bad thing is that the plug, there was an electrical cord still in the puddle of water. But, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, so, uh, but my point is this, very quickly, is that that puddle of water is kind of, and if you looked around the side of the house, there was not much standing water. But there was standing water in the center of the house, particularly on the one side. So we're going, what? what's the deal? One of the beams starting to sag. Uh, you know, you got these big, huge beams. And the, and they're not steel. Like my house has steel. This has wooden beams, supports in the bottom. One big beam and then your cross things connect to that. So we go down and actually end up measuring. And, uh, and like, it's like 25 feet from one end of the beam to the other or 20 feet, something like that. And there's like a half inch to three quarter inch sag at the center of this truss. Um, and so my point in saying all that is that this, that's a sag. And, and sagging is, is not good when it comes to a house, particularly if you want it to be straight. So what's funny is we end up going down, putting a hydraulic thing, lifting the sag, and then we go upstairs and someone gets the right idea. I'm like, oh, you should have never done this. But someone goes up and starts putting the level on the walls upstairs that were all level before we raised the center. And so now all of a sudden, all the walls are not level and all have to be readjusted. Now, that's not fun, particularly nail gun and it sinks them a, qu- a quarter of an inch into the woods. You have to like, cat claw them out of there, like dig in and get. So luckily that happened when it all started raining and I got to go home and they're all doing that today. But my point is this, is we were building on something that was not right. We were building on a foundation that was only a half inch off, but it made everything else crooked. And if we'd have continued building on that, at some point it would become an issue. At some point you have a wall going like this and you're going, huh, like a you know, mountain climbing wall, you know? At some point something, and a homeowner who spends thousands of dollars isn't going to be happy with his house looking like that. The point is, as when we come to our faith 
We build upon something that is foundational, something that is stable, something that is established. And we have to do this. The, the verb established refers to laying the foundation of a building. And what's interesting is that the tense used for established is a perfect tense in the Greek. And basically what that does, that highlights the need for believers constantly to live in a state of being securely founded. Does that make sense? I hope that really helps communicate that better. So when he says to remain established or steadfast, he means to, for believers to constantly live in a state of being securely founded. Basically, firm and stable basically telling us essentially the same thing. In the end, in the Old Testament, the verb establish was used to describe God's founding activity in creation. Now that's foundational. It's also used to describe the establishing of his city on Mount Zion. And so what happens is the New Testament picks up on the idea of the Christian community being a holy building. And as a community, we have a sure foundation, and it is Jesus Christ. But I hope you see that we can slip and start building part of our house on something else or could have never built it on the foundation of Christ in the very beginning. Paul is telling us to build our foundation of Christ. And then he says, you can't do this if you don't study your Bible. And you can't do this apart from the body of Christ. We can't remain established and stable apart from the two most fundamental things of the faith. His word and his word lived out in a community of believers. Foolish. Secondly, do not shift from the gospel, Paul tells us. Do not shift from the gospel. Basically, it's the same idea as before. Just Paul's just putting it negatively. Paul has in view here the, the false teachers who are trying to move the Colossians away from the hope that they have held out in Christ. Not shifting. Like they're hanging tight onto the hope of Christ. And then that begins to shift to something else. That's what Paul has in mind here. Earlier in verse 5, Paul says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So Paul urges the Colossians to focus on the hope that comes through the response to the gospel. So, moving on. The gospel is universal and therefore authentic. It's universal. Therefore authentic. So Paul's saying a number of things here at the end of this verse, but... Paul said in verse 6 that the gospel was being, was bearing fruit and increasing in all the world. And he is now saying that since Christ's rule in both creation and reconciliation encompasses all things, the gospel which announces that lordship of Christ, sorry, that the lordship is, all right, I'm going to back up for you. He, he is now saying that Christ's rule in both Creation and reconciliation encompasses all things. So that's what Paul is saying to us now. Basically, the gospel which announces that the lordship of Christ is to the whole world. In fact, I think what Paul is saying is that 
it has been, I'm sorry, if we look at that verse, it says, which has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Paul is saying that it has been, is Paul, that's the question, is Paul saying that every creature on the earth has heard the gospel? Is that what Paul's saying? I don't believe that's what Paul is saying. I believe what Paul is saying is that the cities, like the core cities in that day, the gospel has been preached, and it's coming out of those cities. I think it's when Paul's view of every creature has heard this. But what I want to really draw out here is that by referring to the universal scope of the gospel, Paul is expressing its authenticity in the message. So Paul's going to take this gospel and say, look, it applies. It's, it's, it's universal. It's, it's under the entire heavens. There's an authenticity to it. And I think it's just like Paul, that in the midst of this, to slap on at the end, the gospel is good. The gospel is trustworthy. The gospel is what will see you through this. Because it is authentic. It is the gospel. All right, back to the text. Basically what we see, again, our past, our present, our future. Our future being presented before God. And that future presentation, conditional upon us persevering. And I think we can see already that this looks much different than our modern definition of eternal security. Let me read to you uh, from R.L. Dabney on this. He says, We do not teach that any man is entitled to believe that he is justified and therefore, therefore shall not come again in condemnation on the proposition, once in grace, always in grace, although he be now living in intentional, willful sin. This falsehood of Satan we abhor. We say the fact that this deluded man can live in willful sin is the strongest possible proof that he never was justified. Which is something else we're going to get to probably in two weeks, okay? And never had any grace to fall from. And once for all, no intelligent believer can possibly abuse this doctrine into a pretext for carnal security. It promises to true believers a perseverance in holiness. Who except an idiot could infer from that promise the privilege to be unholy? I think that encapsulates the difference in the mindset that I hope we get away from. So the tension. So we see that it's God's work. And I think it's beautiful because I think Paul kind of captures this tension for us. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and verse 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you stop right there and you go, you see, our works have nothing to do with it. Like, I'm good. Like, it's, it's, it's Jesus. I can't do any good works to get to heaven and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and what's funny is Paul then goes to verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Two things. We are his workmanship. We're created to do good works. So I hope you can start to see some of the resolution there that, again, it's going to take us some time to get to. So 
Moving on, we see that obviously Paul sees that the final realization of our salvation is dependent upon us persevering. That's clear in the text. Now, I think what we get to here and what I, we have to get through today, because I don't want to leave us hanging right there. But now I think we really get to the glorious part of what does this look like? How does this happen? And I can't do it justice in 10 minutes, but we're going to move through this where we're going to come back to it in a few. But the last point there is that God purposes to ensure our perseverance for his glory. He purposes, he plans, he purposefully carries out actions to ensure our perseverance for his glory. Now, that's based upon the assumption that the one persevering is indeed saved. Okay? That's a big assumption. But nevertheless, it's an assumption that I think we have to be honest about. Philippians 2, for this we're going to turn to here out of to Philippians 2, verse 12 to 13, and work through this just very quickly. Verse 12 in chapter 2 of Philippians says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I preached a sermon on this back over the summer in much more length. Some of this is going to sound a little more familiar, but if you want a good review, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. How does this work? Because these kind of passages kind of coincide with each other. But first of all, basically this working out our salvation means to work it out to completion. This is the persevering that we're talking about, working out our salvation. And here's the deal, guys. We can say with confidence that God, who's at work in me, will see it to completion. God finishes what he starts. Philippians 1, 6, or just one chapter ahead of that, it says, I am sure of this, that he began a good work, and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, that could easily fit in the same context. If, if he were to insert that into Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, if indeed, if indeed you continue stable and steadfast, and I'm sure that if God's began this process in you, that he will finish it, that he will see it to completion. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, thank God, My hope of that day of Jesus Christ and his glory does not rest upon my own willpower or upon my own desire or understanding. It rests upon this fact, that he would never have started the work if he had not decided to finish it. What Paul means in Romans 5.10 is this, you can go back and read 5.10 later, is this, if Christ died for you when you were an enemy and a rebel and hated him, if he died for you in that content, that condition, how much more then will God keep and sustain and hold you and finish the work by the love of Christ? It is an unanswerable logic. The character of God guarantees the completion of his work. But what's interesting is this passage in Philippians 2, he says to work it out with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling we know that we still struggle with temptation and sin. So how do you work out your salvation? We do it with fear and trembling. He says to persevere, if you will, with fear and trembling. What does this mean? First of all, it means we need to be afraid. We need to be afraid. Fear living in a way that dishonors God. The word literally means fright or terror. 
Do you have a fright or are you terrified at the idea of dishonoring God? (laughs) Every true follower of Christ in this room, be terrified of the thought of not bringing honor to God with your life. And what happens is this takes us back to moment-by-moment dependency on Christ. Because you know that the moment you take the reins, you live in self-sufficiency, you are bound to fall. Moment-by-moment dependence. You know that the only way you can stand against sin and temptation is if He provides the power to do it. This is where we start getting into the sweetness of the perseverance of the saints. That He who's doing this work in us, will complete it. As you call out, I need you, I need you, I need you, and he is faithful and he provides. Those he has called, he ensures their perseverance to the end. Number two, what is this fear and trembling telling us? First, second, number two, be in awe because it is God who is at work within you. There's lots of places in the Old Testament fear and trembling are coupled together. You can write these down, look at them later. Exodus 15, 16, talking about the people of God entering the promised land and how the nations will fear and tremble when they see the work of God in the lives of his people. It's not just post-Jesus that God displays his power so that they might have an awe of who God is. But it's not just in the New Testament that he displays that power through his people. He does it in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah 19, 16, the nations will fear and tremble at the uplifted hand of God. Psalm 2, the kings of the earth will fear and tremble. Talking about Christ there. In the Old Testament, when the people saw the work of God, there was fear and trembling in their hearts. So when you bring this picture to us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, think about Think about this. When you think about how in order to work out our salvation, it requires moment by moment utter dependence on God. As we do this, we see the work of God in our lives. So Christianity now becomes a front row seat to seeing the power of God work. Now that's a scene. It's not always dramatic, it's not always joyous, but the reality is this. When we struggle over sin and we live moment by moment dependency, then we see his power provide. We look at what's going on and we see the power of God at work in our lives. It results in fear and trembling and awe of who he is. Lastly, be assured, God will finish what he had started. Romans 13, 11, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed So the final result of the salvation is coming. It's guaranteed by God. There's a fear, but there's assurance. Do you guys see the two sitting there? See the fear. Fear of disgracing our God, walking away. But an assurance that he who began the work in me, if indeed that is a reality, he will see it to the end. 
he will work it out in us. So we should not have confidence, though. And hear me clearly, and we're going to close with this. We should not have confidence in good works that come from our perseverance. Our works do not attribute anything to our merit. We should regard these fruits of our perseverance solely as gifts of God from which we, recog- we may recognize the goodness of God and we may recognize them as signs of the calling by which we will realize our election. So, we see these gifts. We recognize them as gifts from God and we see His goodness. And then we recognize that it's through these that our salvation will be realized. Not not that we do those good works and we're saved because of those good works. Remember, those good works are God's doing. I think Augustine sums this up very well. Augustine was a uh, second century century, uh, theologian, basically. uh, Early church father. Um, And he says this. He says, I do not... I have to get... Before we go... You have to get through some of the old English, okay? So, so hang with as I read through this. Or it says, I do not say to the Lord, despise not the works of my hands. I have sought the Lord with my hands and am not deceived. But I do not commend the works of my hands, for I fear lest when thou lookest upon them, that thou mayst find more sins than merits. This only I say, this I ask, this I desire. Despise not the works of thy hands. See in me thy work, not mine. For if thou seest mine, thou wilt condemn it. If thou seest thine own, thou wilt crown it. For whatever good works are mine are from thee. Wow. Two reasons we dare not boast of our works. Because if we have anything of good works, they don't belong to us. They belong to God. And because these works are overwhelmed by a multitude of sins, that should foster a healthy fear. We should desire for God to look upon his good deeds. And in recognizing the grace of his own work, that he may finish the work he has begun. So final thought, in order to persevere to the end, we must be dependent on God moment by moment. Let's um, pray. Um, We're going to sing the... um, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna start putting all the songs at the beginning because I just use up all the time that I got, and then we don't have time to sing. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, let's pray, and we'll sing, and we'll worship, and and then we'll we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your grace, your sweet grace, for your love that you've poured on us. Father, we, we don't deserve to be um, secure in your arms. We don't deserve 
to, to be guaranteed our final resting place, our final place of life, I should say. But Father, it's because this plan fits into your overall plan to glorify yourself that we get to reap the benefits of this plan. And Father, I just pray that any part of us that is lethargic or lazy about our faith, that we would realize that our, that, that laziness could lead to abandoning the faith. But instead, we must persevere, we must work hard, we must beat our bodies, as Paul says. We might finish this race and not leave it up to chance, but that we work hard. And as we work, we see your mighty hands of grace work in our lives. And that we don't lift up these doings of, our, of ourselves, but we lift up your doings in our lives. Because the reality is, is those of us who are truly followers of Christ, that the works in our lives are yours and not there for us to take credit for anyways, because you're the one that was doing it. But for those who may not be followers of Christ, the only thing they can offer is their works. So Father, in this moment, I pray two things. If there's anybody who has a false foundation of which they've been building their faith on. I pray that you would use these moments to call their hearts to yourself and to show that, reveal that to them. And if it's not in these moments that, that they realize their justification or that their justification is realized and, and they meet you, Father, I pray that this would at least be the beginning of that. And then, Father, for those of us who are saved, I pray that you would... Um, that you would give us the assurance, the sweetness that those of us who are called and are justified, that you will finish the work that you've started. Father, it's for that and many things that we give you praise. We love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.